Wouldn't it be great to learn things a lot faster? On this episode, the key strategies from ultra learners that we can use to improve ourselves and others. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 451. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the leading intentions of so many of us in this community is how we can learn more effectively, not only for ourselves, but for the others around us that we have the privilege to lead and influence, and also how we can learn faster. I know that's a leading thought for many of us, and today's guest has done some amazing work, not only on learning faster himself, but in teaching others how to learn more effectively. I'm glad to introduce to you Scott Young. Scott's work is intended to consistently answer this question, what's the best way to learn? This has led him to take on two year-long experiments in learning, the MIT Challenge, where he attempted to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum without taking classes, and the year without English, where he worked with a friend to learn four languages in one year. Scott is the author of the new book, Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. Scott, I'm so glad to meet you and welcome you to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you have taken on some of these incredible learning challenges. Tell me about the MIT challenge. What was that? Yeah, yeah. So my undergrad experience was in business. I think a lot of people listening to this can probably empathize with that. And after I finished my sort of undergraduate degree in business, I had this feeling that I wanted to learn computer science. I wanted to learn computer science because I was interested in programming. I was interested in running business online, technology, all those sorts of things. And I had felt a little bit like I wanted to have this skill and I couldn't get it at university or I didn't get it at university. And so I was thinking at that time, well, maybe I'll go back to school. Maybe I'll, you know, enroll and get another degree and take out financial aid and this kind of thing and try to get another degree in computer science. But I mean, for a lot of people, you know, if you've spent a number of years in school already, it doesn't sound super appealing, the prospect of going back and delaying your life for another four years. And so what I kind of was, when I was thinking about these ideas, I was online and I realized that MIT actually posts a lot of their classes online for free. So they have this website called MIT OpenCourseWare, where they just upload materials from actual MIT classes. So in a lot of these classes, it has like lecture videos and they have assignments with problem sets and solutions. They have even the actual final exams that MIT students take with Uh the solution key. And so I took one of these classes and I was very impressed by it. I was thinking, you know, this is actually a lot better than classes that I paid good money for to attend in school. So this kind of got the gear spinning a little bit. And I was wondering, has, has anyone ever tried to do something similar to a degree, trying to learn the kind of content of a degree, but instead of going to school, instead of going through the sort of the actual institutional approach, just try to teach it to yourself. And so this MIT challenge project kind of started there with this idea of, could you learn the content of what MIT teaches in an undergraduate degree without, you know, going to MIT, without spending any money on tuition, without really even leaving your home? 
And so that sort of was the initiation of the project. And I had already been interested in some of these kind of effective learning, effective studying sort of methods as well. And so to add a kind of an additional wrinkle to it, instead of doing it over the normal four-year period, I wanted to try to do it in 12 months. So in October of 2011 is when I began the project and I finished and completed the last class. Uh, there's 33 in the program, 33 classes. I completed the last one in September of 2012. So just under 12 months, which is what I had planned. Wow. And so you went through all the courses and mm -hmm. you challenged yourself by taking all of the final exams for the courses, if I'm remembering right, correct? Yeah. So it was not exactly what you would do in a degree, because in a degree, you have lots of things. You have to you know, give presentations and you have group projects and you have essays to write. So I, I had to make it a bit simpler, obviously, because I'm not at MIT and sometimes there is materials missing and this kind of thing. And so what I decided to focus on was for the ex classes that had final exams, pass, be able to pass the final exam. And for the classes that had programming projects, do the programming projects. And this is a, a, admittedly a bit of a skeleton of what you would get from an MIT education, but I think it's an important one. I think it's the one that, you know, could you pass the exams is a pretty good benchmark of did you learn something from these classes? And so yeah. that was sort of my kind of benchmark as opposed to, you know, I'm just going to watch all the lectures and I'm like, who knows whether I understood it all. Yeah, it's really fascinating that you did this. And I, as I first heard about this, my leading thought was like, what a weird thing to do, <laughs> right? And, and then I, as I started learning about your work more, there are a lot of other people who have done something like this, not yeah. necessarily with a degree program, but have, mm -hmm. have really dived in on what you've called ultra learning. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what ultra learning is and how this has showed up in the people you've studied. Well, yeah, so you're kind of explaining the reason I wrote the book because it is a weird thing to do. But why is it a weird thing to do? Now, I'm not saying that everyone should, you know, drop out of school right now and go do their own MIT challenge. But the thing that struck me about it when I was working on the project wasn't that I was, you know, doing something really crazy, but just why aren't there lots of people doing this? Why aren't there more people? Now, I know obviously there's a lot of areas where the credential is really important. Maybe in your environment, the person who's listening here, it is really important that you have that degree. But certainly there's lots of situations where it's not required. Computer science is clearly an example where people move ahead without having necessarily a degree in computer science. And so the fact that this is quite rare, to me, speaks more to the idea that people aren't aware that this is an option. And, and it requires a little bit of planning and, and thought to execute. So I think it's also something that if you don't have that concrete example to follow from, a lot of people just won't try to attempt this sort of thing. And so this book, I wanted to try to not only talk about some of my projects, but lots of other people that I've had the benefit of being inspired from, of people who have taken on things like building multi-million dollar businesses, becoming extremely good at public speaking, you know, learning all sorts of subjects into quite phenomenal depth on your own and talk about their projects and use them sort of as kind of inspiration points so that people can maybe get an idea to do their own project to learn something that's hard and important, maybe in a way that they hadn't considered possible before. Yeah, it's really amazing, the case studies that you talk about in the book of what people have done to not necessarily do education, but to do learning in a very, mm -hmm. very short period of time. And I think that's the thing that really struck me about your work is that you know so many in our audience have had a lot of formal education, and yeah. yet 
the disconnect that I think a lot of us find through many of the formal programs and trainings and degree programs we've been through is that we don't always get what you call in the book transfer, which is mm-hmm. how what we have supposedly learned in those experiences of then being able to apply practically. The sentence you have in the book that leapt out at me was, most formal learning is woefully indirect. Tell me what you mean by indirect and the the opposite, of course, being direct learning. Right. So there is research on how learning impacts things. And this is actually something that goes back pretty much over 100 years, where the early experiments were kind of challenging this idea. And it's a popular idea. I think it's one that many people kind of intuitively hold today. And I think, I don't know why it sort of intuitively holds, even though we've known that it's false for about 100 years. But this is this idea that the brain is like a muscle. And and I want to be clear what I mean when I say that. When you go to the gym, and let's say you do some bicep curls with some dumbbells, you would expect that strengthening those muscles, and you have to go carry groceries later, that you know to the extent that you're using your arms to carry those groceries, you're going to be able to carry those groceries better. Now, you know that like maybe lifting dumbbells and lifting grocery bags is not exactly the same, but you know you, you, you see a big guy who goes to the gym every single day. You would expect them to be better at carrying groceries. Now, this is sort of an analogy that we extend to the mind, that the mind is just composed of these sort of discrete faculties, things like reasoning and critical thinking and memory. And these are, these are thought to be fairly kind of uniform things, just like our bicep muscles that, you know, you do something that practices critical thinking in one area and you'll be more rational in in other areas. And this turns out not to be the case. This isn't how the brain works at all. That when the brain learns things, it tends to be quite specific that you will learn how to do that thing and maybe not that much else. Now, it does get a little bit more complicated when you have layers of abstractions and and things that are not necessarily direct skills, but a lot of the early research basically shows this, that if you train someone to learn Latin, for instance, they mostly get good at learning Latin. They don't get good at all sorts of tasks that involve memory or or general linguistic ability. And so what this means, (laughs) unfortunately, is that if you want to start learning something, and if you want to get better at some particular domain, so you're learning business so you can apply it in your job, or you're learning you know, computer programming because you want to build some app or something like this, then you're going to be much, much better off if you start your learning with a direct connection to the thing that you want to get good at, not only the exact skills that you want to have. So I use in the book, the example of if you're going to learn a language to have conversations, you should have conversations much, much earlier than most people do, because then you're going to at least make sure that the stuff that you're learning has an opportunity to be transferred relatively quickly. And you can get that kind of fairly near transfer. You don't have to you know, make this big intuitive leap between, you know, where you learned it and where you want to apply it. And so this is sort of the starting point of that. You've identified through your work and through studying folks who have dived in on doing something like ultra learning, Mm -hmm. four key tactics for enhancing directness in learning. And one of them is project-based learning. What does project-based learning look like in contrast to the typical kinds of learning activities we're doing? So the way I would view project-based learning is that you you design some project to, and, and then this could be to do something, uh, like a clear example of that would be like if you're, let's say, learning programming, and then your, your projects are going to build this little piece of software or something. But you can also do it in the context of, okay, I've got a big presentation to give. And so that's sort of what you're building up toward with public speaking skills. Or it could be 
I really want to be able to do this thing with Excel. So I'm going to learn this kind of project for Excel. And the idea is that you set some sort of concrete outcome or concrete work product of what you're trying to build towards. And then your learning efforts are more, how do I do that thing? Or how do I learn to do that thing? And if you choose the right activity for your project, for your end goal, you end up learning a lot, probably comparable to how much you would learn in sort of a classroom, which is the sort of typical pace where you just take a book and then it gives you a set of lessons. You might cover a lot of those lessons. But the difference is that because you're actually building something, presumably you pick the project because you somewhat care about what the outcome is, you're going to be learning a lot of things that are quite specific to the situation you care about. And I think this matters a great deal for transfer because one of the reasons I think a lot of the experiments on transfer show difficulties is that to actually use knowledge, so things that you've learned from a book or a classroom, to use it in real life requires maybe a lot of different skills all coming together at the same time. So if you can imagine speaking a language, for instance, it's not enough to just know the words. You have to know how to pronounce them. You have to know how to put them in the right order and sentences, maybe conjugate them, you know, and you have to be able to do this fluently. You have to do this at the speed at which someone else is speaking. Otherwise, communication breaks down. And so the problem is that if you only ever learn vocabulary words, that's not that that's a bad activity to do for learning a language. Maybe that's an essential one. But the problem is that if you only do that, maybe these like 80 to 90% of the other skills that you need in order to actually perform that language are missing. And so you fail, you fail at doing that. And so I think if we can understand this in the context of learning a language, we can also understand that in a more abstract context of buying business skills that you learn from your MBA, for instance. Well, yes, there is a certain sense of, okay, like I'm going to take, you know, this, the SWOT analysis or Porter's five forces or this kind of thing. And I have these abstract ideas and maybe I played around with them with some case studies when I was in business school. But in order to actually transfer that to the situation I'm working with, I maybe need some other skills. I maybe need the skills of sort of really identifying what the situation is, of organizing my thoughts, of being able to test this analysis. So there's other kind of component skills there that maybe aren't going to get trained in this purely academic context, but would get trained in a project-based learning environment. And that's going to turn out to be quite helpful if you later want to be able to use that skill in a real context. And we learn the most when we're struggling with something, don't we? You know, it's it's so easy to watch a TED Talk or read a book or get an A in a course and to make the assumption that we've quote unquote learned something. And and we do have more knowledge most of the time, but it's also very easy to either subconsciously or consciously kind of sidestep some of the more difficult struggles in those situations. Yet when we're actually creating something or producing something through uh, through a project or building something, it, you can't you can't sidestep the struggles, can you? Definitely. And this sort of relates also to an issue of feedback as well, that when you watch a video or you read a book, you know, most people don't test themselves, right? Like I think that was one advantage of the MIT challenge is that there was a test at the end, right? Like there was actually some sort of, okay, did I actually learn this to some degree of sophistication? And I think that's really important because for a lot of the things that we kind of casually engage in with learning, you know, oh, there's this new business book, I'm going to listen to it on Audible. And, oh, I listen to that book. And, and you feel really good when you're listening to it. But how much is it actually going to affect your behavior downstream? How much is it actually going to make you a better leader, or manager, or entrepreneur? And that's sort of a bit more of a question mark. And the reason it's a bit more of a question mark is that even on just purely the issue of recall, which I would argue is 
you know, that's a somewhat easy task. Just what was in the book, right, is, is obviously easier than, you know, you could remember everything in the book perfectly and not necessarily apply it, but it's a lot harder to apply it if you don't even remember what was in it. But even on this issue of recall of, oh, could you say what was in the book? Could you say what was in this chapter? Could you say what you learned there? There are lots of gaps. And I think that we often don't test ourselves. We don't actually experience sort of that feedback of, oh, wow, actually, I forgot a lot from that book. And so you can just keep reading more books, keep attending more seminars, keep going to more, you know, have speakers come in and give your office a presentation and, and you can feel good about those things. But unless there's this sort of connection to the real world, unless there's this connection to feedback, it's often very difficult to actually know how much you learn. And it does take a little bit more time on the front end to think about like, what would I produce or what would I have someone else produce as part of this learning activity? But I think it's, it's a really good challenge for all of us as leaders and many of us who have the responsibility to help others learn is even if it's not the central part of a learning experience or a talent development process, how can we get people to produce something through what they're learning or they go to a conference or they go to a certification? And if there is not a element of producing something as part of that, like how can we help people to really come alongside and do actually make something, produce something for the organization, for themselves, so that they really get the practice of applying what it is they've learned? Yeah. And, and one thing I would add to this as well is that the way a lot of people, I think, naively think about it is that okay, let's say you go to this seminar and then there's this you know, brilliant and entertaining speaker that talks all about all these great ideas that are going to revolutionize your organization. You come back and you're pumped up. I think a lot of people would conceptualize that situation as, okay, well, I learned what I was supposed to do in the seminar. And then it's just about implementing it. Just kind of like how in a classroom, like I learned when the teacher was talking to me. And then when I did the homework, I just sort of showed that I, I learned what the lecturer was talking about. But I think for most of the skills we care about, it's actually more the opposite, that most of the learning, most of the actual rewiring of your brain to be able to produce results happens during the practice, that the lecture, the content that you consume, this can adjust you along a path, it can give you some methods, it can, it can accelerate that. So I don't want to say that it's useless, but at the same time, if you are omitting that big practice component, you're missing a lot of it. So I think one way of putting this is that a lot of skills are a lot closer to a physical sport, like let's say like skiing or tennis, than we realize in the sense that you couldn't just have someone give you a lecture on tennis and then go to a grand slam. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the learning is going to come from actually playing tennis. And we understand that for physical sports, but I think there's a sense that our educational system in some ways deceives us into forgetting it, I guess you could say, for skills that seem more intellectual. So that when you are you know, reading some great business book and it's talking about, you know, some some high level abstract concept, there's a sense that you sometimes get, well, oh, this is, you know, okay, listening to it was the most important thing here. And that really, if you wanted to make use of it, it would probably be from practicing, it would probably be from deliberately applying it to your situation and thinking through the consequences and getting feedback and, and all those sorts of things. And it is really interesting how hard that is. And it is contrary to a lot of the ways a lot of us have been used to learning. I think about when we start our academy groups and make the invitation for people to take on one commitment, a behavioral commitment for 90 days. Often, I find myself coaching people on you know reading less, listening to less, and mm. focusing more on the behavior. 
And it seems like it should be really easy to focus on one behavior. But over a couple of weeks, it, as you get into those struggles, as you get into the real learning, it's a real challenge and it's uncomfortable. And people find that it's a, it's, it's a struggle. And yet, they also move way faster than if they went and read another book or took another course. And it is really contrary to the learning a lot of us have been taught how to do. Yeah. So when I'm thinking about projects or, or sort of efforts to learn things, a lot of what I think about is that people do actually learn in a fairly effective manner if their environment is right. So you can think about going to a new job or a new team or, or a new environment. You're probably learning at a pretty accelerated pace just because the environment is forcing that. You know, you have to get on top of your job. You have to get on top of your tasks. Right. But the problem is that we often get in these moments where we feel pretty comfortable and the environment's no longer pushing us. And so I think the real skill of ultra learning is how can you kind of nucleate these little sort of, and it doesn't have to be like a physical environment. It could even just be sort of your mental environment, these projects that will force a certain behavioral change in you. It will force you to go out and actually do things and practice stuff. And so I think that's one of the things that I kind of try to stress in my, in my own work and in my own doing of things is that often this is the sort of key ingredient is how do you design the project? How do you think about what project you're going to take so that it will just automatically cascade into doing a lot of other things right. So I talk about in the book this uh, trip to, to learn multiple languages. And the most important decision that I made in that entire thing, the most important thing that had the biggest impact on how much we learned was the decision early on to say, okay, we're going to go to these countries. And when we land in the country, we're only going to speak in the language we try to learn with each other and with anyone that we would meet. And that sounds really difficult. And I don't want to say that it's easy because it's not. It is difficult. But it actually made things a lot easier than the alternative approach of, I'm just going to try to learn as much of this language as possible. And the reason it makes it easier is because creating that environmental constraint, it quickly gets reinforced with feedback. All the people you meet, you speak to in Spanish, let's say, and so they get used to speaking to you in Spanish. So you don't have to ask them to, they do it automatically and you get used to it and everything just sort of kind of reinforces each other. And so I think a lot of us are sort of kind of perversely in this situation in our, let's say, our, our, our working lives, where we're in the situation where we're trying to speak in Spanish, but everyone's speaking to us in English. We're trying to learn this new skill, but the kind of environment we're in often reinforces us to just do what we're already good at. And so I think designing a project that will push you out of your comfort zone, push you to try to learn new things, this can often be very valuable and kind of incidentally hit a lot of these key principles of learning, of directness, of feedback, of retrieval, etc. And what you just described is one of the other tactics for enhancing directness is immersive learning, being surrounded mm -hmm. by an environment where you are learning constantly. And I love the example of language because that's such an apparent one of going into a place where you are just speaking a language and you have dedicated yourself to do that, where... I'm and I'm trying to think like where else you might do that in a context of say hey I'm trying to get to be a better speaker for example because that's one of the mm -hmm. examples in the book how would you engage an immersive learning approach in doing something like that like in a business or an organization where you're because like you said a lot of times we're surrounded in an environment where we don't necessarily be are immersed in our learning. Yeah. So one of the things that I would look at if I were to do, you know, to use your example of like, I want to get really good at public speaking is how can I design a project? That, that's usually where I start. I usually start with what is the project? What is the kind of, okay, I'm going to do this for this many months. I'm going to devote this much time. I'm going to clear away some other priorities so I can work on this. 
what is the project that would allow me to experience this kind of accelerated growth? So the example of the book is that I worked with a guy who, his name is Tristan de Montevello, and he went in a period of about seven months from having near zero public speaking experience to being a finalist for the World Championship of Public Speaking at Toastmasters. So like an extremely dramatic improvement in ability in seven months. And then on top of that, it ended up affecting an entire career change for him that now he has like a speaker consultancy and he kind of totally, you know, took a 90 degree turn on his professional life. And this is such a dramatic story. It's such an extreme story. So I'm not saying that everyone needs to, you know, become a world champion in something in, in several months. But I think his story is illustrative because it can kind of show you what kind of ingredients went in there. And one of the things that he did, which is pretty simple and obvious, is that he was just speaking way more than a typical person who wants to get good at public speaking would speak. So typical person, maybe you're going to have a speech, you know, once every once every couple months, maybe you're having a speech. Maybe if you're like really doing a lot, you know, you're going to join a Toastmaster, you're going to do something. Maybe you'll do a speech a month or maybe even a speech a week. He was doing six speeches a week, sometimes two in one day. And the thing about that is that, again, that sounds like a lot of work and it is a lot of work. So I don't want to say that it's, you know, it's trivial from a time investment perspective. But one of the things that it, I think, really hits upon is that the thing that most people struggle with with public speaking is not having enough time to do public speaking. The thing that most people struggle with is that public speaking is kind of terrifying. You want to prepare for it. You want to not screw it up. You want to really... And this emotional resistance that you have very often dominates any actual time considerations. I mean, if you want to do speech, maybe takes you 20 minutes. You could probably on an hour a day do six speeches a week if you really wanted to. The reason people don't do that is because that sounds really uncomfortable. That sounds really kind of emotionally straining. But the sort of converse of that is that if you do six speeches a week for any sustained period of time, you're going to quickly get over that fear and discomfort with doing public speaking. And so it's a little bit like the language learning example where, you know, yes, only speaking in this language is very difficult. And yes, that does require a certain kind of mental preparedness. And it requires a little bit of effort to get over that first hurdle. But about two weeks in, it feels totally natural. Now, you're not going to be fluent in two weeks. You're still going to be struggling but you get over that emotional inertia that keeps you from doing it. So I think that's very important as well is how you can kind of design projects that they are sort of self-reinforcing in this way that a lot of the emotional hurdles that you maybe have with getting started right now will just get completely swamped by your own exposure to it in a short period of time. And so I think this is one of the things that can really make a big difference because yes, learning takes time. Yes, this takes effort, but realistically, even if you were to spend a couple hours a week doing a project like this, it could make big, big improvements in your life. So I don't think the time is the main consideration. It's more this emotional reluctance we have. One of the other tactics you mentioned is flight simulator. And I think that is being able to enhance directness. And a lot of us are familiar with the pilots going through the flight simulators in order to learn how to fly effectively. How does this show up in other learning environments as creating an experience like that? Yeah, so the idea of the flight simulator approach actually comes from a study that was done comparing different approaches to teaching flying. So obviously, we go back to this problem of transfer and directness. And this presents a real problem for skills where you can't actually do it directly in the start. Like, you can't just fly a fighter jet. <laughs> you can't fly this, you know, $100 million fighter jet when you have no training. 
Like that, that's crazy, right? You're going to crash it. You're going to kill yourself. And, and you're also going to waste a lot of the government's money. And so this is not going to be an approach for learning. Same with, let's say, doing surgery. I don't want my doctor to be, you know, just diving in and just sort of like, well, I don't know how to do this sort of heart transplant, but let's just ultra learn our way to the top. And so I think the idea here is that what this study showed was that the thing that matters when you're trying to create transfer environments or you're trying to create a practice environment that will have a high degree of transfer to this situation is not so much all the little details because you know you can't adjust and match every single little thing when you're actually working on it. What matters is that what you have to do with your mind, so the discriminations you have to make, meaning you know, you see this situation and you have to see, well, is it this situation or is it that situation? Do I need this knowledge or do I need that knowledge? So the discriminations and then also the decisions you have to make. So, you know, do I do this or do I do that? And if those things are roughly similar to the situation you care about, you'll get pretty good transfer, even if some of the superficial contextual differences are not. So in the fl flight simulator approach, what that meant is that if the decisions that you had to make as a pilot in the flight simulator. So while you're flying the plane, you know, you're getting the right readings on your measurements, you're getting the right kind of feedback about, okay, what's happening in the plane that would allow you to perform well on the actual plane. However, it didn't matter so much whether, you know, it was using HD graphics for the sky or this had the exact same leather feel for, you know, the particular chair you're sitting in. Those didn't matter quite so much. And so I think this actually makes it a lot simpler to, to learn skills because then you can just ask yourself, how does this compare to what I would actually be doing? What would I actually be doing in the real situation? And if it's wildly different, you know there's going to be potential issues of transfer there. But if it's quite similar, even if it's not the quote unquote real thing, you can often get a lot of benefits for training. So, you know, if you can't go to Spain to learn Spanish, if you can't go on this trip to Mexico to learn Spanish, you can maybe have a Skype conversation. And that's not going to be a perfect situation of transfer, but the basic structures and ingredients of a conversation will remain largely the same. And so you can do the same thing your own context where perhaps if you are you know, going to Toastmasters and the reason you're going there is because you're trying to work on a business proposal, but the audience maybe doesn't know anything about your company or your business and they're not going to give you critical feedback. Maybe you could just say, hey, you know, like find a colleague who's in your company say, hey, could you come with me to this Toastmasters? Maybe they're also interested in public speaking so you can, you know, return the favor and give me those kinds of questions. Give me that kind of feedback that you would get if you were actually sitting in an company meeting where I'm doing this. And so I think that's also very, very valuable too, is that when you identify differences or deviations from the real situation and the thing that you're trying to practice, you can try to add corrective steps to adjust yourself closer, especially if you're worried that the skill might not transfer as well as you'd like to. The final tactic you mentioned earlier for enhancing directness is the overkill approach. And mm -hmm. I think you said, you know, making something harder than you might actually do it in real practice. What's a way that I might do that that would, you know, get me moving further than I might actually need? Right. So the idea of the overkill approach is that very often what we're trying to do when we're learning things is that we're trying to perform in some range of situations. So, you know, you're not trying to just learn that the answer to a specific math problem is seven. You're trying to, you know, be able to solve a certain category of problems. And, and I think this is especially true in, in business, especially when you're applying abstract skills, is that you are trying to improve your general ability to make business decisions, your general ability to you know, do certain things. 
And so I think one of the ideas of the overkill method is that if the practice environment you have is kind of strictly broader than the real situation, so you have strictly more examples and there's more degrees of freedom and there's more things that you'd have to learn, then this can kind of make sure that you've covered that. And so similarly, like I was using the example of the MIT challenge, that a lot of the classes, the main benefit of them was sort of understanding an abstract idea. So understanding about computation, understanding about you know, complexity, understanding about these sort of abstract principles. And, and I do use them in my writing and in my, in my thinking about lots of problems in my life. But at the same time, where I was actually being tested, it is not just, do you kind of get the general concept here, but can you like prove it rigorously and mathematically? And that, that turns out to be not only involved the conceptual skill, but also, you know, an, an additional layer of math and other little tricks and tools and things like this. And so I think that is one way of dealing with those problems is that if you construct a challenge that is in some way bigger than the challenges that you face in life, that it is somewhat harder, it is a higher bar, then this can kind of trickle downstream to being much better at the thing that you care about. So Tristan Montebello did not have to go try to compete in the world championships of public speaking in order to just get to be a better public speaker. He probably didn't have to do all that. But by setting himself that challenge and by working towards that approach, it kind of naturally made him a much, much better public speaker, even if his goal was just, you know, to just sort of perform adequately in giving a speech for, you know, a book or something like that. Scott, this is just fascinating, and it lines up so well with some of the principles that we've heard of on the show in the last year or so on retrieval practice and metacognition and learning. And I love your invitation to us, not necessarily to dive in and do what you've done, which is you know take a year and learning a language or going and, and doing an entire degree, but the principles around ultra learning are just so applicable to so many of us at helping us to do this better for ourselves and better for others as well. So my challenge for everyone listening is if you found this helpful is to take a look at the reading highlights from the book. Also to check out the book, Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition and Accelerate Your Career. I think you'll find so many of the principles that Scott talks about in the book that'll really help you to accelerate your learning, and particularly if there's a skill you've zeroed in on that'll help you to become more effective this year in your career, or you're challenging others to do that. Scott Young, thank you so much for challenging us to learn a lot faster. Appreciate your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. If you found these strategies helpful from Scott, several other episodes in the library that you're going to want to dive in on that'll support you in getting even better at your learning and development, also to support you in doing that for others. One of them is episode 337, Six Tactics for Extraordinary Performance. In that episode, we did a deep dive with Morton Hansen on the research he's uncovered of how people are learning and doing better within organizations. And specifically, we talked about six tactics that can help you to learn. The research he's done has inspired a lot of the work we've done in the academy. It is a fabulous model on a practical level of what can you do in just five or 10 minutes a day that starts to move you forward on your professional development. Episode 337 is where to go for that. I also would recommend episode 376, how to become the person you want to be with James Clear. When we aired this episode, so many people mentioned how useful James' recommendations and strategies were on how to set habits more effectively. In particular, he invites us to make the transition from thinking about goals to taking on new identities 
also has inspired a lot of the work we've done within our academy community. I highly recommend it if you are looking to improve what you're doing now and to create habits in a way that will be sustainable. That's episode 376. Also, I'd recommend episode 414, Permission to Be Yourself with Bar Schwartz. I just caught up with Bar recently. She's one of our academy alumni, and Bar is doing incredible things in her career, and she has been utilizing the strategies from Morton Hansen and James Clear over time, and she talked in detail about it on episode 414 on the Saturday cast of how she began a writing habit of just five minutes a day, eventually turned it into a book, and now it's generating all kinds of fun things happening in her career. It's a wonderful, inspirational story and a great reminder for all of us on the practical things we can do in order to continue to learn and to grow. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 437, How to Know What You Don't Know with Art Markman. That is metacognition. We talked about that in detail when Art was on the show. Uh, So many of you have mentioned how helpful his work is in thinking about how to really identify what are the areas that may be blind spots and how you can get better at being able to work through those. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, it'll give you access to the entire library since 2011, searchable by topic, including all of those episodes I just mentioned, plus many more that we've detailed around talent development and habits and personal leadership over the years. In addition, one of the other resources that you'll find inside the free membership is several free audio courses. One of them is how to create your personal vision. I walk you through in detail in five lessons exactly how to create your personal vision, where to get started, uh, the difference between vision and mission and purpose and all those words that we hear. Uh, Dive in on that. It'll be really helpful to you if you haven't done that before. All of those you can find inside the free membership. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com and set it up. Next week, be sure to join me. John Maxwell is going to be on the show. He will be teaching us how to motivate leaders And nobody knows that better than John Maxwell. He'll be uh, teaching us some of the key strategies to not just motivate people, but motivate leaders. Don't miss it. Have a wonderful week and see you back next Monday with John Maxwell. Take care.